The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. Today, we cover the history of the socialist movement through the eyes of two of our Teamster strike leaders, the old Swede, Carl Skoglin, and Vincent Ray Dunn. Like the previous episodes, I have had to leave out a lot of details. The socialist movement is international and complex, and many sentences in this episode could themselves be turned into half-hour episodes alone. Our focus, as always, is on the Teamster strike, and what I have included is what I think is necessary to properly understand its background and context. We will begin with a brief introduction to Karl Marx, followed by Karl Skoglund's experiences with the socialist and labor movements, bring in the Dunn brothers, the founding of the Communist Party, and the later split between Trotsky and Stalin. If this sounds like a lot, it is, but the events of this episode will bring us into the 1930s and soon the Teamster strike itself. One of history's most important philosophers and political economists, Karl Marx's lifelong project was to understand and critique capitalism in its totality, and from this, organize to overthrow it. Born in 1818 in Trier, Germany, only a few years after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and when the French Revolution remained a living memory, Marx witnessed the growth of capitalism firsthand. When he was exiled to England in 1850, he was able to observe the horrific impacts of the Industrial Revolution upon the working class that his collaborator, Friedrich Engels, had written about so lucidly a few years prior. Marx and Engels emphasized the role of economics, material production, and the social relationship between classes as the keys to understanding history and society. They called this historical materialism. Rather than gods or ideas driving history forward, Marx argued that, quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles between freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman. In a word, oppressor and oppressed, end quote. Particularly in England, the class struggle had transformed into a division between capitalist and wage worker. Using this historical and sociological method, as well as the German dialectical mode of reasoning and the British analyses of capitalism from Adam Smith and David Ricardo, Marx and Engels transformed the utopian socialism of the French into the scientific socialism that became known as Marxism. Marx was astonished by both the revolutionary nature of capitalism and the horrors that it brought about. He wanted to discover its secrets and how exactly it continued, if not exacerbated, the class struggle. Marx approached capitalism from both a theoretical viewpoint and a historical viewpoint. While its supporters justified capitalist relations in the same way as the Minneapolis Citizens Alliance did, through the language of rights, freedom, and contracts, Marx emphasized the violence necessary to establish the system in the first place. In what Marx called primitive accumulation, the initial basis of capitalism lay in theft, violence, and slaughter. Marx wrote, quote, 
the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of primitive accumulation. On their heels tread the commercial war of the European nations, with the globe for a theater. It begins with the revolt of the Netherlands from Spain, assumes giant dimensions in England's anti-Jacobin war, and is still going on in the opium wars against China, etc. End quote. Thus, to Marx, colonization, imperialism, and war, along with the expropriation of European peasants through the process of enclosure, were essential ingredients in the creation of capitalism. Even when this historical argument was put aside, Marx argued that even if capitalism were to function in its supposedly ideal manner, it still resulted in exploitation and alienation. This is going to get a bit heady, but bear with me. Marx began his theoretical analysis by analyzing the arguments the Citizens' Alliance would later put forward. Two men meet each other in the marketplace, one with money and the means of production, such as a factory, and one with no money, but with a particularly valuable commodity, his own mind and body, his ability to work, or what Marx called labor power. The capitalist now signed an exploitative contract with the wage worker. In a theoretical example of a cotton spinner, Marx supposes that the worker can produce enough value to replace what he needs for he and his family to survive in six hours of labor per day, his wage. But this would mean no profit or surplus value for the capitalist. But, quote, in buying the laboring power of the workman and paying its value, the wage, the capitalist, like every other purchaser, has acquired the right to consume or use the commodity bought. You consume or use the laboring power of a man by making him work, as you consume or use a machine by making it run. By buying the daily or weekly value of the laboring power of the workman, paying his wage, the capitalist has, therefore, acquired the right to use that laboring power during the whole day or week. He will, therefore, make him work, say, daily, 12 hours, over and above the 6 hours required to replace his wages. He will therefore have to work six other hours, which I shall call hours of surplus labor. End quote. The surplus labor, the ultimate source of profit according to Marx, the capitalist receives for free because he has the right to dictate to the worker that he must labor beyond what the worker himself needs to live. The surplus value generated by this relationship between capitalist and worker was in turn distributed among the capitalist himself as well as the landlords and the bankers. With the growth of factories, Marx argued that the capitalist further appropriated more value from the same amount of workers via no work of his own, but through technological advances, cooperation, and the division of labor. However, just as this system sowed further class division, it was this concentration of workers within a single site of production and distribution that Marx and Engels pointed to as the source of working-class power. Rather than one or two workers laboring within an artisan shop, capitalism generated factories and distribution systems with dozens, if not hundreds, and later thousands of workers. Thus, labor was socialized. But while labor was socialized, the means of production remained privatized. Marx's ultimate goal, therefore, 
was to extend socialization beyond labor and into ownership and control of material production, hence socialism. As I have alluded to throughout the podcast, Marx's vision extended far beyond mere critiques of capitalism. Marx did not only want to interpret the world, he wanted to change the world. Surrounded by a world of misery and poverty, he also lived in the midst of revolution. Only weeks following the publication of the Communist Manifesto, the revolutions of 1848 broke out throughout Europe. Late in his life, Marx also witnessed the brief but glorious Paris Commune of 1871, in which workers and artisans took control of Europe's largest city. The Commune's fall to the French national government, resulting in thousands of Parisian communards dying in battle, and a further state execution of 10,000 Parisians, bolstered Marx's arguments that the interests of the capitalist and ruling classes were fundamentally incompatible with the interests and needs of the working class. Reform was insufficient. Capitalism could be broken only through revolution. A revolution in which the workers would seize the state and socialize the means of production. The working class would itself then abolish capitalism, establishing a society without class and without a state. In other words, communism. And one man who picked up on Karl Marx's ideas was Karl Skoglund. Karl Skoglund was born on April 7, 1884, on a feudal estate in Sweden, only one year following the death of Karl Marx. As a young adult, he worked a skilled job at a pulp mill, where he helped organize a union and even led a strike. As socialism grew in popularity throughout Europe at the turn of the century, Skoglund's trade unionist experiences put him into contact with the Marxists. He joined the Swedish Social Democratic Party, a member of the leading socialist institution at the time the Second International. After the Swedish state conscripted him into the army and kept him in service long beyond the terms of the agreement, Skoglund helped lead a protest of soldiers. The army declared this action a mutiny and blacklisted him from any skilled jobs in the country. He thus emigrated to the United States in 1911, leaving behind a fiancé with whom he was never reunited. Like many Swedish immigrants, Skoglund came to Minnesota. And also like many Scandinavian immigrants, Skoglund brought socialism with him. Skoglund initially worked on a railroad construction gang for Northern Pacific. Toiling for a contractor, not the company directly, Skoglund recognized that the contractor's only function was to steal the value of his labor at no cost. What particularly irked him, however, were, quote, the arbitrary powers of the camp boss and his own inability to answer back in English, end quote. Fed up with the situation, Skoglund moved to Minnesota's northern forests to work as a lumberjack, where he soon suffered a severe foot injury from a fallen tree. Now useless to the company, Skoglund was given minimal treatment and sent on his way. Arriving in Minneapolis, he worked odd jobs, eventually landing a gig as a railway car repairman at the Pullman Company in 1916. To get the job, he had to sign one of those yellow dog contracts that legally barred him from organizing with the union. Unlike the other railroads, the Pullman Company was not unionized due to the workers' loss in the great 1894 Pullman strike led by Eugene Debs. Having affiliated with the industrial workers of the world while in the Iron Range, Skoglund now also joined the Socialist Party in Minneapolis. The Swedish section elected Skoglund its chair. While working, Skoglund kept a fine library of Marxist literature, 
and frequently had guests over to read, discuss, and lecture on the finer points of socialist organizing and politics. His serious engagement with theory was a major element for the high regard awarded him by the local socialist movement and put him into direct contact with the Dunn brothers in 1915. The Dunn brothers numbered six, and four concern us in this story, Bill, Ray, Miles, and Grant. Although born in Kansas City, the family moved when they were children to International Falls, or Little Falls, Minnesota, it's unclear, after their father suffered a severe injury. Because of his central leadership during the strike, and is who historians have provided the most detail on, we will focus on the life of the second oldest brother. Vincent Ray Dunn, or Ray, was born April 17, 1889, five years after Skoglund's birth. Ray worked as a lumberjack beginning at the age of 14. But soon sick of the job, Ray traveled the country looking for work, to some degree like Floyd B. Olson. He labored in North Dakota's farms during the harvest season and moved on to Montana for more work as a lumberjack. Through North Dakota and Montana, he met and joined the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblies. Here, Dunn received a copy of Darwin's Origin of Species. Having left school early to work, Dunn used Darwin's book to teach himself to read over the course of six months. He also finished the book as a philosophical materialist, rejecting his Catholic upbringing. Although this likely only continued a religious skepticism that had been sparked by a parish priest who had expelled the Dunn brothers from their confirmation class when they were caught reading some Victor Hugo. In the meantime, Dunn was imbued with the wobbly ethos. I've mentioned them several times so far throughout the podcast, but we can briefly discuss who they are now. In the early years of the 20th century, the dominant socialist trend across the United States was not Marxism, but syndicalism. Founded in 1905 by leading socialists such as Big Bill Haywood, Daniel de Leon, Mother Jones, James Connolly, Lucy Parsons, and Eugene Victor Debs, the industrial workers of the world advocated for a new style of unionism. The American Federation of Labor, the dominant association of trade unions in the country, was made of craft unions, in which carpenters, painters, truckers, etc. had their own trade and occupation-based unions. The AFL further focused upon skilled trades, which in effect excluded the workers in the factories of mass production, as well as racial minorities, immigrants, and women. Charging the AFL with elitism, the Wobblies instead urged for industrial unionism, for one big union that would unite the entire working class, regardless of skill, gender, ethnicity, or race, against the capitalist class. Partially because of their base, who were not allowed to vote in elections, the Wobblies mostly rejected involvement in politics and refused to constitute themselves as a political party, contrary to the Marxists or the Socialist Party. They also would have rejected, for example, the farmer labor party's incorporation of small business owners and small bankers as contrary to their class-based politics. The Wobblies were also skeptical of collective bargaining, regarding it as a contract enforced by the capitalist state. Any proper enforcement would be due to worker power anyway, thus negating the need for the contract. The Wobblies theorized this would help prevent bureaucratization, as it happened throughout the AFL unions. Rather, they thought the only way to break capitalism was through direct action, led by the unions in two broad categories. First, by sabotage, such as working slowly or sloppily, not taking proper care of the machines, or working to rule, 
in which laborers followed codes as closely as possible. Second was the most powerful weapon of labor, the strike, in which the workers completely ceased work, withdrew their labor, and usually left the factory entirely. The Wobblies took it one step further. They argued that the key to revolution, the solution to capitalist dominance, was the general strike, in which all workers, regardless of particular conditions or grievances, struck in solidarity against the entirety of the capitalist class and the capitalist state. Hence, their desire to organize all workers into one big union. The syndicalist theory of change, therefore, rested entirely on the economic power of the workers, and in this they differed from Marx, who had advocated the seizure of state power. While Scoglin and the Duns would ultimately reject the anti-political stance of the Wobblies, as well as use collective bargaining to their advantage during the strike, the syndicalist theories of industrial unionism, sabotage, strikes, combating trade union bureaucracy, and the potential power of the general strike would leave a lasting impression on the Marxists. While the Wobblies were crushed during the war, as we discussed in episode 2, we will see their ideas reemerge in 1934. Following his work in the Wobbly camps of North Dakota, Dunn kept on moving west, catching rats for bounty in Seattle and participating in the Wobbly's free speech movement in California. Still a teenager in 1908, Dunn found himself in Arkansas, where he was sentenced to a chain gang on a vagrancy charge. He managed to escape the situation, permanently returning to Minneapolis. He married Jenny Holm in 1914 and soon had two children. He initially worked at an express company, perhaps at Wells Fargo, alongside a future 1934 strike leader, Ray Rainbolt. He then switched jobs again, becoming a clerk for an ice delivery company, and while there, he joined the Socialist Party, where he met Scoglin, finding himself a lifelong mentor. Scoglin weathered World War I as a mechanic at the Pullman Company, mostly because President Wilson's administration had buffered the antagonisms between capital and labor in the all-important wartime industry of rail transport. By war's end, the local but unrecognized union numbered 400 workers, with Skogland as its president. As we discussed in episode 2, the end of the war brought about a global strike wave, including not only the streetcar strike in the War of St. Paul, but also a strike at the railroads to protest wage cuts, as the rails were transferred back from government to private control. In a so-called illegal strike of July 1919, the Wilson administration sent a representative to a meeting of 5,000 at the St. Paul Auditorium, urging the Railway Brotherhood back to work, to which this representative was booed off stage. Wilson conceded and ordered that no workers were to have their wages cut and no one fired, including Scogland. The administration also set up the Railroad Labor Board, a federal agency that regulated the industry's labor relations. Pullman tried to start a company union, that they would control, but Skoglin was elected to its board near unanimously with the workers' intention of busting it. The company then held another election, in response to which the workers boycotted by casting blank ballots. In a workplace with over 150, only five or six workers turned in marked ballots. With no legitimacy, the company union dissipated, and the bona fide union remained. But in 1922, the Railroad Labor Board approved an average 12% cut in wages among the mechanics and repairmen, including those at the Pullman Company. 
This provoked a strike of over 400,000 railway workers across the country, 100,000 in Chicago alone. Skoglund was elected the president of the local strike committee in Minneapolis. However, the capitalists and the government had split the brotherhoods, promising those who worked directly on the trains that they'd be spared the cuts, preventing working-class unity. The strike played out in a way typical of the Citizens' Alliance, although on a national scale. The rail companies went to the courts, convincing judges to issue court injunctions against picketing. Reminiscent of the 1903 mill strikes in Minneapolis, Skoglin reported later that, quote, The railroad companies put extra cars on the trains, hauling in scabs from various parts of the country. They lodged them in Pullman sleepers in the yards and had dining cars on the tracks to feed them, so it was not necessary at any time for them to leave the yards. At that time, there existed on a national basis organizations whose purpose it was to furnish strikebreakers wherever they were needed. They furnished skilled machinists, electricians, who were paid exorbitant wages during the strike, and after the strike was over, these same strikebreakers were back on the payroll of these professional strikebreaking organizations. End quote. After three months, the president of the Railroad Workers Department of the American Federation of Labor secretly negotiated a contract with individual railway companies, rather than a nation and industry-wide contract. The treachery ended the strike and resulted in a number of company unions. Pullman refused to sign, leaving no union in the shop at all. Skoglund, who had personally been on strike for over a year, was kicked to the curb, never to work on the railways again. For Dunn's part, Wells Fargo fired him during the war, for refusing to buy war-saving stamps, and then blacklisted him for handing out the Socialist Party's newspaper, Appeal to Reason. And thus began American labor's long decade of defeat. However, in the midst of war and international labor revolts, events of incredible magnitude had rocked Russia, changing the course of world history, including Minneapolis, for the rest of the century. These were the Russian revolutions of 1917. World War I ravaged the soldiers, peasants, and workers of Imperial Russia. Russia's ruling class, the Tsar and his ministers, generals, and the empire's capitalists and landlords, continued to support the war, but Russia's rank and file ached for peace and stability and food. In February 1917, on International Women's Day, Women left the factories and their homes to march in the streets in massive demonstrations. With Petrograd, the country's capital, and deadlock, Tsar Nicholas II called in troops to break the strikes and demonstrations. But the soldiers, too, suffering from the war, refused to fire upon the women, undermining the authority of the Tsar. As Nicholas II failed to keep command of his own army, he was forced to abdicate the throne. The February Revolution forever ended rule by monarchy in Russia. In its stead, the ruling class established the Provisional Government, a supposedly democratic body that remained in the control of nobility, capitalists, landlords, and generals. Perhaps its most important decision was to not only continue the war, but to escalate it. But a new source of state power reemerged throughout the nation, the Soviets. Twelve years earlier, in 1905, the working class of Petrograd had led a failed revolution against the Tsar. But prior to being crushed, they had thrown up strike committees that became known as Soviets, the Russian word for council. 
They broadened in scope as these councils of elected workers took on local governance and administration independent of the imperial state. The Soviets had left a strong impression upon the Russian working class, especially the socialists. Following the Tsar's abdication in 1917, Soviets now began to organize independently of the provisional government. Russia's socialist movement was fractured into a number of parties and organizations, anarchists, moderate social democrats, agrarian-based social revolutionaries, and two other groups within the Marxist tradition, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, vied for bases among not only Russia's working class, but the peasants and the soldiers as well. And for the sake of time, we will pass over the months of inter- and intra-party turmoil, political intrigue, attempted coups by generals, and escalating war that marked the spring, summer, and autumn of 1917. In October, the workers, peasants, and soldiers, for the second time in a year, transformed their own social order. Now, the provisional government had to compete with the workers, peasants, and soldiers Soviets for legitimacy and rank-and-file allegiance. Having escalated the war rather than ending it, and having not introduced land reforms to destroy the vestiges of feudalism, the Russian rank-and-file turned away from the provisional government and to the Soviets. Of Russia's socialist parties, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky, had become the most popular among the workers and soldiers. Over the course of the year, they had called for all power to the Soviets, down with the ten capitalist ministers, and land, peace, and bread. By October, the Bolsheviks were elected as majorities to the largest Soviets, and by month's end, the Bolsheviks called for armed insurrection, and within days, the provisional government collapsed. The Russian Soviet Republic was born. For the first time since the Paris Commune in 1871, and for only the second time in world history, the Russian rank-and-file had founded a workers' and peasants' state. Led by Vladimir Lenin, Leon Trotsky, and the Bolshevik Party, Marxists had guided the working and peasant classes to victory. Following a civil war waged by the Russian and international capitalist class, including Britain and the United States, the Soviets emerged war-torn and bloody, millions having died in the war. But now, they constituted the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, and the Bolsheviks renamed themselves the Communist Party. The international ramifications of the October Revolution were immense, and we are going to ignore almost all of it as we return our focus to the provincial, almost frontier town of Minneapolis, Minnesota. The October Revolution induced a split in the country's socialist movement between moderates and the left wing. The left wing adopted the revolutionary methods and theories of the Bolsheviks and Marxism and joined the Russian Communist Party's third international, the Comintern. Throughout Europe, the left-wing socialists had followed the example of the Russians and deserted the Second International en masse due to its Soviet support of World War I. The moderates of the Socialist Party, on the other hand, had mostly adopted the reformist methods of the Second International. Both continued to participate in local and national politics, running candidates for office, but the communists ultimately argued for a radical break in which the rank and file would eventually construct their own means of state power and smash the capitalist state, as Marx had envisioned. And in Minneapolis, Skoglin and Ray Dunn were founding members of the Communist Party of the United States. Throughout the 1920s, Skoglin and Ray Dunn continued their labor organizing. Despite being known as a rebel and an agitator, 
but also regarded as a good worker, Dunn was fatefully hired by the Deletra Dixon Coal Company in 1921. Scoglund joined him later after being fired by the Pullman Company in 1922. They both began working in the coal yards, helping load this important heating fuel onto trucks for distribution throughout the city of Minneapolis. I'll just note for your benefit here that it is in the coal yards where the entire Teamster Strike of 1934 begins. Dunn scaled the ranks, moving from coal-heaving helper to driver, dispatcher, then soon waymaster. Not only did this put him into direct contact with all of the company's drivers and helpers, but now in the office, Dunn organized an AFL local of stenographers and bookkeepers. Because of his role, Dunn was elected to the Central Labor Union, the Minneapolis hub of the AFL, extending his reach among the city's working class. Indeed, according to the journalist Charles Walker, every worker in Minneapolis either knew Ray Dunn or knew someone who knew Ray Dunn. According to Palmer, the owner of Deledra Dixon was, quote, a scion of the old Minnesota lumber industry and had a touch of Tory paternalism. And Ray's politics were tolerated, treated with bemusement. Dunn's value to the firm was undeniable. His intelligence and reliability apparently trumped his public radicalism, end quote. Apparently not aware of a central role in organizing an AFL local under their noses, quote, his bosses undoubtedly saw Dunn as a trucker's advocate who, while up to no good, was achieving very little, end quote. While the coal company tolerated Ray's views, the AFL did not. At its 1923 annual convention, the AFL expelled Ray's older brother, Bill Dunn, for being a leading member of the Communist Party. Indeed, AFL locals throughout the country purged communists from its ranks, including Ray Dunn and Skoglund. Dunn also continued operating in this time within the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party, active in its 12th Ward Club in Minneapolis. Although the party expelled him in 1928 when he ran against Senator Henrik Shipstead in the primary. At one point, Skoglund attended a meeting of the Communist Party in Michigan, which was raided by the federal government. He buried some papers with a comrade to hide from the feds, although he discovered his comrade to be a government spy. He narrowly escaped capture. As a radical immigrant, Skoglund always faced the threat of deportation, although the U.S. government never succeeded. But in 1928 came what they called the cruelest cut of all. In a series of political events that remains incredibly controversial among today's left, the Russian Communist Party split as Joseph Stalin and the Comintern purged Leon Trotsky from their ranks and exiled him. Trotsky, a leader of the October Revolution and the commander of the Red Army in the Russian Civil War, had become increasingly concerned over a host of issues within the Soviet Union, including bureaucratization, the role of the trade unions and the Soviets themselves, agricultural and industrial policy, and the Soviet Union's relationship with the world's revolutionary movement. Stalin considered Trotsky's actions and policies to be counter-revolutionary. But for the sake of time, not only yours, but for mine, we are going to again ignore this controversy as it pertained to Russia, and instead focus on how it impacted Minneapolis. James Cannon, whom we will introduce at greater length later in the podcast when he arrives in Minneapolis to help the strike, had caught wind of Trotsky's expulsion from the Third International. According to him, the party had kept much of the internal debate from its rank-and-file members. Even he, one of the American section's leaders, was kept in the dark. While in Russia, Cannon had by accident come across Trotsky's oppositional platform and smuggled it back to the United States. Cannon was astonished with its contents, 
agreeing with every reason for Trotsky's opposition to the official party line. He showed it to individual members of the Communist Party he thought would be sympathetic, one by one. Through this initial organizing, mostly located within New York City, Cannon built what came to be known as the Left Opposition. However, for his support for Trotsky, Cannon and his sympathizers were immediately expelled from the Communist Party. Cannon then created the Communist League of America, Left Opposition, with a program now known as Trotskyism with a newspaper called The Militant. In Minneapolis, Dunn and Skoglin caught wind of the Communist Party's expulsions of Trotsky and Cannon. According to them, for demanding explanations, they too were expelled, the cruelest cut of all. Bill Dunn, Ray's older brother and until then a mentor, refused to join Ray and Skoglund, agreeing with the policies of Stalin. The two never spoke again, each referring to the other as a complete stranger, Ray calling his older brother a Stalinist bootlicker. We will see Bill Dunn return in 1934 as an antagonist to the Teamster strike leaders, and we will dedicate an episode to the Communist Party's role in the strike and their analysis later on. The split between the Trotskyists and the Stalinists became violent, especially in New York City, but also in Minneapolis. In public meetings or on city streets where Trotskyists gathered or sold newspapers, Stalinists would arrive to drown them out, disrupt the meetings, and even physically assault them. In one instance on January 23, 1929, James Cannon visited Minneapolis to address the truth about Trotsky. Although Cannon had warned his Minneapolis comrades to organize a defense guard to protect the meeting, he was not heeded. Skoglund and Oscar Coover, a co-leader in the 1922 Pullman strike, were the first to arrive at the event's location in order to sell tickets when they were ambushed by a mob of 30 Stalinists armed with blackjacks and brass knuckles. Coover was sent to the hospital. The meeting continued, but the Stalinists had packed the front row and shouted down Cannon, causing a free-for-all to break out. A woman working for the event hall called the police, and when they arrived, a Stalinist pointed out Cannon to the cops, urging his arrest. The cops obliged. The Stalinists, seeming to have united with the police to suppress the Trotskyists, provoked the Wobblies, who canceled their own Saturday night meeting to allow Cannon to speak on free speech in the labor movement, the Wobblies' own political forte, in which Dunn himself had participated, a decade and a half prior. The programmatic split between the Trotskyists, the Communist League, and the Stalinists, the Communist Party, that immediately concerns us is their orientation towards American trade unions. Both factions agreed that the AFL was woefully conservative, due partially to the AFL's purge of communists in 1924, and a prediction that world revolution was imminent, the Communist Party began to advocate for the formation of unions independent of the AFL. These so-called Red Unions would be organized outside of the AFL. This idea played a stronger role in San Francisco in 1934 than in Minneapolis. The Trotskyists, despite the difficulties of organizing within the traditional craft unions, argued that forming new unions would alienate the less radical sections of the working class. Organizing new unions when none existed should be encouraged, but socialists should work within the traditional AFL unions because that is where the majority of the working class remained. The idea was that as the Trotskyists continued to organize within the AFL local, they could win over the allegiance of the rank and file while directly antagonizing the bureaucratic leadership, as we will see repeatedly. To that end, Dunn and Skoglin remained in the coal yards. They were also joined by his two younger brothers, Miles and Grant, who had abandoned Bill and the Communist Party. They all remained in the coal yards because Dunn and Skoglin had eyed these work sites 
in its almost defunct driver's union as a key to organizing labor throughout the entire city. Now, I have never been good at describing historical figures, but it is important, so I'll rely here on historian Brian Palmer's description of the Dunn brothers. Palmer describes Ray as, quote, deliberate, sober, unobtrusive, known as a respectful listener. Resembling Humphrey Bogart, he was a regular guy who smoked union-made cigarettes. Admired for his integrity and often tested physical courage, Dunn encapsulated leadership and workers would often follow his lead. He seldom bothered to hold union office, preferring to rule by the force of his personality and the demonstrable accuracy of his judgment. A commentator remarked some years later that Ray Dunn was the nearest America had come to producing a Marxist in the selfless tradition of Lenin. End quote. Ray's two younger brothers complemented his personality. Miles, or Mickey Dunn, was more sociable and, quote, an effective orator, an aspiring actor said to possess dashingly good looks and mix well with the coal yard workers, able to butter up those who required diplomacy and flattery. Unlike Ray, Mickey liked to heckle their oldest brother in public, end quote. Grant Dunn, Palmer writes, was, quote, arguably the face of teamster militant toughness, calm and defiant in public, while not afraid to bluff and bellow at bosses and bureaucrats in negotiation. His legendary scowl was threatening, end quote. Historian Philip Korth interviewed a cop who dealt with the Teamsters in 1934, in which he described the Dunn brothers as, quote, soft-spoken, gentlemanly little fellows, but tougher than hell. The brothers' close alliance with Carl Skoglin, the wise, well-read, and experienced strategist and mentor with a limp from his lumberjack days, formed a core of Marxist leaders who would guide their union through the twists and turns of 1934. Like Karl Marx, Skoglin and the Duns considered society to be constructed by class conflict between the capitalist class and the working class. Veterans of the class war themselves, facing strike-breaking, blacklists, imprisonment, deportation, and violence, they had made the Minneapolis Citizens Alliance their lifelong mortal enemies. To end the miseries of Depression-era America, the working class would need to awaken from its knockout suffered in the early 1920s. The Trotskyists stuck to their cause, organizing from within the coal yards. Slowly winning over the allegiance of General Driver's Local 574, the Minneapolis working class was on a collision course with the city's and state's elites. Following a brief detour through FDR's New Deal as it pertains to labor law, we will turn to the first strike of 1934. Now, before we fully end, I would like to acknowledge that as this podcast is published, Inmates across the United States are engaging in a protest and strike against their living conditions and the working conditions, which literally amounts to slavery. Because of their role in this episode, I want to emphasize that the Wobblies, through the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, have been the main outside organizational force behind the strike. While as we saw the Wobblies were crushed by World War I, they continue to be a vibrant organization today. And this podcast is in 100% solidarity with their work in this action and the inmates and prisoners across the country who are fighting for their rights and for their lives. This has been 1934, Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable, and thank you for listening.